We return to our interview with Dr. Jack Ryan on Afghanistan and our support of counter-revolutionary policies on bringing light into darkness. I mean, Osama bin Laden was actually trained by the CIA, given help in every which way. So this is what was happening there. It was a, it's a tragedy that this occurred. And the September 11th issue occurs in the USA where the buildings were, were destroyed. But the interesting thing is that the FBI uh, had no hard evidence connecting bin Laden to the 9-11 thing. And uh, the documents were, uh, I remember, I, I still was able to spot the documents on the Internet right up until bin Laden was supposedly killed in, uh, I forgot what year that was. 2011, May of 2011. Right. And so anyway, the, this is the, the situation. We still don't know exactly what happened on 9-11. The, the Afghanis had, there was no reason for them to go, in, and even the Mujahideen had no reason to go and attack the USA. And the crazy thing is that these, I don't know how many of them guys armed, 19 Arabs armed with box cutters were able to do all this. We still don't know exactly what happened. And let me ask you this, because I think at the very least, what we can say very clearly is that you had Saudis that were involved in 9-11, and you had Osama bin Laden, allegedly, the head of all that. And this was a creation that we created in the Mujahideen, that is, that Osama bin Laden and this Islamic fundamentalist ideology that we fomented. It was used in a very short-term way in which to give Russia a black eye in Afghanistan, actually suck them into this involvement and then deliver them their Vietnam was Brzezinski's fantasy, which largely came true in a certain way. But of course, there was different motivations. You know, we invaded Vietnam and, you know, Russia came to the aid of a country that was requesting that aid because they, they never had any imperialist types of interest in Afghanistan before that. That's their eastern border or whatever. Yeah. And right. I, and really, you know, it's interesting that if they're so imperialistic, why wouldn't they have tried to take Afghanistan so much earlier? I mean, this is how you have to just start deconstructing this. But I, what I wanted to get back to have you speak to was you had mentioned the opium trade in uh, Afghanistan. And Finian Cunningham, in an article, indicated, well, first of all, that under the Taliban, as you've already indicated, they just about wiped it out. They wiped yes. out th th this opiate. And then as soon as they're kicked out, it bounces right back up. And there's right. a lot of writers that have written very eloquently about this drug money throughout the last 50, 60, 70 years. And Finian Cunningham talks about this big advantage from drug businesses that the finances are off the books and therefore not subject to congressional oversight. And that, that dark source of income allows American agencies to fund covert operations without ever being held to account. C can you elaborate a little bit more? That sounds, it makes sense to me that you know, if you can't get money from our own government, we tried the Iran-Contra way, right? <laughs> By getting uh, you know, money from Iran to, right, to, to right. fund the Contras. Well, here with the drug money, I never really thought about that it, in that way. I just thought it was just a bunch of money, but actually it's money off the books. And can you talk a little bit about your knowledge of the amounts of money we're talking about and the history of the opium trade in Afghanistan? Sure. In, in two, it was in 2001 
that the Taliban came in, and they just about shut down the entire heroin operation. By the way, I saw poppy fields in Pakistan. I didn't see any in anywhere in, in Afghanistan when I was there. And this Their is major export was raisins, for heaven's sake. This is 1978. So when you were there in 1978, there was no opium trade. Is that right? No, no. Mm-hmm. Well, by 2001, uh, well, there was a lot prior to that. But then in 2001, they cut it out. And then immediately after that, the opium trade restarted. And by the way, the American attack on Afghanistan was never approved by the United Nations. It was essentially an illegal war that was never reported in the mainstream media. And many people, most people, were simply unaware of this. So they proceeded to take over the country, and they, they then restarted the drug trade. And interestingly, it was, it was the CIA that was getting money from this. I'm not exactly sure how. But it was helping to finance the CIA, drug money from Afghanistan. Crazy situations, aren't they? Well, we might not know exactly where that money went and all that, but what we do know is that, just as you rather eloquently said, when when we got involved, all of a sudden there was this great uptick in the volume of this illicit opium trade in the U.N., was very, very happy with what the Taliban was doing with reducing it back in that, what, 2001 period that you mentioned. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, you just got to kind of put two and two together sometimes. It's circumstantial evidence, but, you know, it's just like here we're talking about, and this is just one example. We've talked about a bunch of other examples on this show that here we're overthrowing a government or promoting the overthrow of governments in which you had all these democratic reforms, this new secular government, all these women's rights. I want to go back to that just real quick and have you comment because in your article you referred to i think a john pilger article but also in your own article you cited this medical doctor anahita Rabzad. she was appointed ministry of education of the taraki government i mean women aren't even allowed to walk across the street and here you have a government in which you have the minister of education and she has an editorial in the New Cabal. She wrote, Privileges which women by right must have are equal education, job security, health services, and free time yes. to, to rear a healthy generation for building the future of our country. Educating and enlightening women is now the subject of close government attention. I mean, all of this was, was wiped out by the U.S. foreign policy manipulations. Yeah, that's entirely true. And it's, um, I'm just coming across my article here where I said that the CIA was paying something like $3.2 billion a year in their role in the Afghan war, and this came from the drug trade. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, right. So th- there we are. Well, so when you think about this period of time from 1978 forward, you know, it's, it, it seems to me like from reading your article and studying the situation on my own and other sources, that you know you have these great democratic advances that occurred post what 1978, coup, that yep. coup we were talking about, and the Taraka government comes to power. Then you have some of the most regressive forces the world could possibly know: the Taliban and the Mujahideen in this Islamic fundamentalism that just brutalized in, infidels, right? Those that you know did yep. not have this hard deal, and yet they were trained and promoted by by the West and the UK, uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia in the 1980s, all in an effort to inspire 
opposition to this government for our, our geopolitical interests. And, yep. and, and, and we claim to be so interested in women's rights, but we are so ahistorical in this country. We have no understanding of history. So that's all anyone, anyone has to say for us to then go into Afghanistan, like we're going to go in there and help women's rights, when in fact <laughs> it, was, it was quite the opposite. Exactly. Your piece is very enlightening. And I guess the other thing I just wanted to ask you about is it seems like there are some fundamentally progressive types of things that the Taliban may be up to as we speak. You mean right now? Uh, yes, today. Uh, and, 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 yes, I, and I guess, right. and you spoke to that a little bit in your arc. Can you kind of share what your perception or what the reality is, and what is that based on? Let me just go back a little bit. Sure. This 20-year period that the U.S. was in Afghanistan, there were 775,000 American soldiers served there, and about 2,400 of them were killed, and another 20,000 injured. And then there were other, Canada was right in there as well, for heaven's sakes, you know. Mm -hmm. But the Afghan military and police had about 70,000 killed, and there were about 50,000 Taliban were killed during that time. Overall, it was about a quarter million people were killed in Afghanistan and the Pakistan zone during this time. It's, it's just an incredible thing. Mm -hmm. And what's left behind is unexploded ordnance of various kinds mm -hmm. and is still killing people at the moment. So right. anyway, when the, at first when the Americans came in, the Afghanis, the, the Taliban just cleared out because they knew they couldn't fight them. And it was when uh, the 2021 Americans left. What's happened is that the, the government that the U.S. established was so corrupt, it alienated everyone. The people were just driven into worse and worse poverty. And so the, the Taliban then regrouped, and instead of acting against women, they accepted the role of women, and they proceeded. They had the support of the, of the public, and that's the reason that when the Americans finally left, the Taliban came in there in a matter of a, a few days. Right, um, right. And it was just a, an amazing thing to everyone's surprise. And what they wound up saying is that they, well, they, uh, they had meetings with, in both in Russia, China, and, and Iran, and they said that they would try to bring in an inclusive government, if, if at all possible. But what's happened is that America has locked up something like $10 billion in their banks, and, and keeping this money, they still haven't released it. So the Taliban at the moment, the government in Afghanistan is having a hell of a time. They practically have no money. The people support them, but, you know, there's very little they can do without, without any money. So I don't know how this is go going to work out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, my understanding is that there's different brands of the Taliban. Some are more progressive than others. You know, you have the older type of ones that are maybe more more fundamentalist and stuff but yeah there's apparently you know you can't have a scenario in which you just mentioned in which you have the taliban come sweeping into power in a matter of days what is it three hundred thousand soldiers laying down their arms our our trained yeah. little army there that we spent all this money on again and of course the money people make money off those sales you know that are that, exactly. are, that are very very far from Afghanistan, and they reside right here in some of our defense contracting homestead. 
But yeah, I mean, it's you could tell that the will of the people, as reactionary as the Taliban has been in the past and such, it sounds like politically they're changing somewhat to loosen up many of the restrictions oh, yes, that they yes. used to have on women. Um, it's still no paradise for women, that's for sure. Um, yeah. And it certainly is, is nothing compared to the Taraki government that we would love, I would love to see return uh, to power. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if, if you can finish that thought there about the current situation then here in, in Afghanistan and what you see as the potential future. So I guess Afghanistan, what is it, Russia and Iran and China, they're out reaching with aid. But you're yeah. right. The United States, after all of this devastation that we did to that country, we turn around and we just sanction the bejesus out of them and freeze this $10 billion of additional fund and, 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 yeah. and the World Bank as well as the IMF that we have great influences in are withholding aid as well. What is the prognosis from your perspective? You know, it's hard to say. It's um, uh, Actually, the last few weeks I haven't been following this, this closely, but it seems they're trying to, uh, they're reaching out to China. China and, and the, the uh, Taliban uh, government are getting along reasonably well. China is going to give them uh, assistance of various kinds. So uh, it looks like China will be the the big help to them. Russia, they haven't done very much as far as I know, but uh, Iran may very well help them as well, you see. But it's, it's a, somehow pressure has been put on the USA to release this $10 billion to, to, to help the uh, Taliban people. It's um, uh, I think it's just outrageous that they've taken this money, locked it up, and, and it's it's not their money. It's the Taliban money, for heaven's sake. I don't know how it wound up in American banks. I guess that's how the previous government <laughs> operated. So the the present government, we call it an interim government. There are, I don't know, some 30, 30, uh, 30 people in the government. And uh, there are represent not only Taliban, but there are Uzbeks and Tajiks in there as well. And no women, though, so far. But it's hard to say, Pedro, it's hard to say what's going to happen. It's, but by the way, when the Taliban came in, <laughs> the, the, the Americans had trained an army of 300,000. None of them fought. They dropped their weapons and they just uh, took off. And so exactly. there, there, was, <laughs> yeah. there was no resistance whatsoever. Yeah. So there we are. That's a great point. I mean, that's exactly the point, is that you, they don't have their heart in it, because that's the type of armies that we create, because we're on the wrong side of these, these issues. Time and time again in our history, we have armed and trained armies that don't have their heart in it because they're supporting corrupt governments we put in power, whether it's Afghanistan or whether it's Vietnam? How much money did we invest in training 300,000 Afghanis army soldiers that literally laid their arms down and ran because the government they were fighting for was not worth supporting? Or how many times would there not even be a force to fight unless we were the ones supplying the arms and munitions, making millions and billions for defense contractors for conflicts that would never happen in the real world without our involvement. As we have documented, there would have been no Syrian war from 2011 to present if it wasn't for the U.S. involvement, arming and creating these jihadist oppositional forces that have provided for the whole time 
the backbone of the resistance to the Assad government that we endlessly demonize without ever looking at our own foreign policy behavior. Or on the other hand, other examples abound where we just are creating mercenary forces. We spent almost a half a billion dollars to train four Syrian moderate forces. Listen to this clip from from Rachel Maddow back on September 16th, 2015, as she was reporting on some congressional hearings with Lloyd Austin, who was the general at that time. He's now our Secretary of Defense. And the congressional questions are asking uh, how this proposed training is going that's supposed to have some 5,400 Syrian moderate forces trained by that point. Check this out. CENTCOM Commander General Lloyd Austin today had to fold his considerable six-foot-six self into a wooden chair in a Senate hearing room uh, for what ended up being a very difficult day of testimony to the United States Senate. Uh, For the first time, General Austin today confirmed, uh, with as little fanfare as possible, that despite what you might have heard, the United States military does have boots on the ground inside Syria. General Austin confirming for the first time today that U.S. Special Operations troops are working with Kurdish forces inside Syria as the Kurds fight on one side of the many-sided Syrian civil war. That is not a politically popular thing to admit because the U.S. strategy for intervention in that war has really centrally been about keeping U.S. boots off Syrian soil. You know, airstrikes, yes. Ground troops, no. Americans in Iraq is supposed to be okay, but Americans in Syria is not supposed to be okay. That was the official line until today at this Senate hearing when they admitted that U.S. boots are on the ground in Syria. That's big news. Syria, of course, feels impossible and unsolvable. It feels like nothing is going to make it any better. But the U.S. government has not been, you know, staying out of it entirely, right? The U.S. government has had a military intervention in Syria of various kinds over the past year. The U.S. government decided to spend 500 to 600 million dollars training vetted Syrian rebels to fight against ISIS and to fight against the Syrian government inside Syria. Well, today, after having to admit that actually the U.S. military does have people on the ground in Syria directly, General Austin then had to explain that even though the U.S. started this training program for Syrian rebels back in May, and the plan was to have more than 5,000 fighters trained by the U.S. and back in the fight in Syria by the end of this year, after all of these months, after all of the money that has been spent so far right now, he admitted to the Senate today that the total number of U.S.-trained fighters who have been sent back into Syria and are engaged in the fight on Syrian soil right now, the total number is four. Not four divisions or four battalions or even four platoons, but literally four, maybe five. Can you tell us what the total number of trained fighters remains? Uh, It's a small number, and... uh, uh, the ones that are in the fight is uh, is is we're talking four four or five. So. Four or five. This is a half billion dollar effort. It has produced four or maybe five people fighting in the entire Syrian civil war. So we're counting on our fingers and toes at this point. When we had envisioned fifty four hundred by the end of the year. I love me some Claire McCaskill, but if you want to get literal, we're not counting on our fingers and toes the numbers of fighters this half-billion-dollar program has produced. If you have the standard number of fingers and toes, you can just pick one or the other. Because if there's a maximum of five of them, you can do that with just one foot or one hand, depending. 
people? There have been five years of war in Syria, and it is not only going nowhere, it seems to be going nowhere faster and faster and faster. It would be awesome if this absolutely riveting presidential contest we're having in the United States was producing constructive new ideas, being well debated in our own country by our best and brightest in terms of what we ought to do about Syria, what to do about ISIS, what to do about Assad. But in addition to these unjust interventions, is the issue of U.S. sanctions throughout the world. It's, it's astounding to me that, I mean, sanctions in and of themselves, you know, they, they just maim and kill and starve civilians. Yep. You know, I mean, that's what they, and we've got them, you know, we were talking about this last week, it's some uh, almost 40% of the world's people are being sanctioned presently by the United States. It reminds me of George yep. Bush's famous words, you're either with us or against yep. us. And if you're with us, yep. We won't sanction you, but we know from pre previous shows, if you're with us and you have our preferred government, then the majority population is going to be much, much worse off than these more nationalist governments that have tried to come to power and have come to power in many ways in, in different parts of our hemisphere here, and we have uh, opposed them. And, and, and if you can show that, that consistently every time we have a government come to power that we're against— the people are better off under that government. I'm talking about life expectancy and poverty levels, just basic human needs stuff. And the opposite is true, is that every time we have a government that we support comes to power, those things increasingly get more challenging for the majority population. It just indicates that we are the ones generating this inordinate wealth inequality. Listen, Dr. Ryan, I, I just want to thank you so much for your time and your writings. Before I let you go, I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to tell our audience we've had the great privilege of visiting with Dr. John Ryan. He's a retired professor of geography and, and a senior scholar at the University of Winnipeg, where he's taught for over three decades. He got his Ph.D. from McGill and has been traveling throughout his illustrious 92 years to over 50 countries of the world. And Dr. Ryan, if people want to access some of your writings, how would they do that? And can you close the show with just a little bit about these feline friends of yours and your infatuation with, 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 <laughs> with cats? Well, <laughs> I... Actually, I, <laughs> I grew up in northern Manitoba, right in the frontier area. Um, when my father came in there, there was nothing but bush. So he cleared off, in a period of time, uh, about half his 150-acre uh, farm. And uh, I had a, two brothers and a sister. I was a sort of an afterthought, because when I was... Um, my, my brother, my sister was 15 years older than me, and my brother was 14, and the other one 13. So when <laughs> I grew up, I had nobody... But uh, my pussycats and, and, and the dog, no neighbors nearby, so I hardly saw anyone. So I had this, cats and dogs were <laughs> extremely important to me. <laughs> and then, of course, when I, I left and proceeded to, I took my grades 1 to 8 in, in that little school, and I took my 9, 10, 11, and grade 9, 10, and 11 by correspondence. Mm -hmm. And then I went to a, all in all, the point is that I finally did all this, and um, and I didn't get uh, a, a cats again until, oh, let me see, 
I guess 25 years ago, so I, I, I got them. So anyway, the, uh, my characters right now, I, I wrote a book about them. I called it the Saga of the Three Compañeros, <laughs> Pantera, Leo, and El Tigre. And it's got nine reviews on Amazon. Really? <laughs> nice. I, I was astonished at this. Well, if people, <laughs> if people are interested in, in, in pursuing some of your writings, including those books, but also your writings on Afghanistan, how would they access that? Oh, well, for my articles, a great many of my articles are posted on a website called Global Research. Okay. Global Research. So, so if they, you go to Global Research, then, many of my articles are there, all my Afghan articles and very a good. great number of them. And there oh. are others. Canadian Dimension is another one. So they could just uh, search at that website under Dr. John Ryan, R-Y-A-N. Yeah. Well, Doctor, thank you so much for your time and your illustrious insights and your wonderful nine-plus decades on this planet. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, been a, it's been a real joy sharing this time with you. We, we'll look forward <laughs> to staying in touch, and thank you for again for being on Bringing Light into Darkness. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for having me. I much appreciate it. Thank you. All of my very best to you. Okay, very good. Thank you, sir. Okay, that was Professor John Ryan, a Canadian citizen, 92 years old, and wrote what I thought was a brilliant piece that uh, was published just a couple of months ago, September the 26th, 2021, on global research following the U.S. exit from Afghanistan and on August the 30th of the month before. He provided and validated a incredible history of the secular state that briefly existed in Afghanistan at the very late 1970s until we were instrumental in destroying it. The title of the article was Afghanistan Before and After the U.S. Intervention. It has a number of links that link you into untold history, information being kept in the darkness, and it's just been a great privilege of having Dr. Ryan as our guest tonight on Bringing Light into Darkness. 92 years old, and his brain is as crisp as I wish mine was. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with Co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out, as we do every week, with Land of Naivety.